I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Good Grief, a podcast about grief and how we develop, learn, and form meaningful traditions around it. Hello, welcome to episode two of Good Grief. I'm Jay Gearing. Before I get on with the intro for this episode, I just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone out there for all the listens and the shares and the feedback. Um, I got some really genuinely lovely messages from a lot of you out there, which was really touching and it made it all worth it. So thank you. So in this episode, I'm talking to Anita Nea about her experiences with miscarriage. Um, Anita is a social psychologist, originally from Croydon in South London, and now resides in Peterborough in Cambridgeshire. Her job as a social psychologist has kind of two halves to it. One half looks at hate speech and how to counter hateful narratives, and the other half is one-to-one, which includes mentoring and counselling. Anita is also trained in psychodynamic counselling and works with people who are leaving gangs, so predominantly young people, that kind of thing. Anita is of mixed heritage. Her father was Indian and her mother is English. And in her spare time, she enjoys writing poetry and occasionally performing it, cycling, swimming, kayaking and attending cultural events. Okay, so this one's obviously an important one. I I hope they all are, actually. We cover some important subjects in this one. But specifically, this one really talks to how society at large really doesn't understand how deeply affecting miscarriage can be. So we need to write a good friend, so, and that comes across in this podcast, that we talk about this in quite a light but a matter-of-fact kind of way, even though it's such a heavy subject. And the subjects that are covered are complications of grief surrounding miscarriage, because there's a lot of shame and taboo around it. And a lot of this episode concentrates on the difficulty but necessity of embracing your pain. Um, she talks about the book Unattended Sorrow and what happens when you try to ignore pain and try to get on with things and how transformative it can be if you do engage with it. She also talks about the mixed care and understanding from pretty much everyone, including friends, hospital staff, family, that kind of thing. Um, Having to have a garden burial for the fetus. The sensitivity and care given by the hospital chaplain And we briefly talk about the loss of her father at an early age and the appreciation of having such a good dad. Just after that, you can listen out for the punch she gives to the microphone. We talk about non-verbal expression through crying and the shame around it and support from friends, but also support and advice she's given to others going through a similar experience. 
the larger question of do any walks of society deal with grief better than ourselves? Um, this is talked about from a Muslim perspective, but also uh, what's happening in a more secular society like our own. And the podcast starts with me asking Anita what attracted her to being on the podcast in the first place. I think when you first spoke about it, I was like, oh, maybe I can talk from a psychologist's perspective about grief. Mm. But actually, then I started to think about, as a psychologist, how badly I dealt with grief on one particular occasion, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of laced with all sorts of weird societal taboos that I didn't realise existed, which was that I was, in a year I was pregnant three times, and I miscarried three times. Um, and I was absolutely devastated, heartbroken. I mean, it's, you know, I lost my father at a young age. I lost my grandparents. I went through grief, but I've never been through grief like that. And there was so much going on. Um, and I thought it'd just be really interesting to talk about that because I think there was a lot that made that grief complicated. And I think, so I went through this process with my uh, clinical supervisor, you know, all psychologists have a supervisor. And um, I remember talking to him about the way I was feeling. And I think one of my big realisations when I spoke to him was, one, he was the only person I could speak to about it. But two, a lot of what I was carrying was other people's stuff and not my own. And... It was really interesting. He introduced me to this book called Unattended Sorrow, which I have here with me today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really helpful. So Unattended Sorrow, it's kind of, it's all about what happens when you don't really tune into your pain, when you try to ignore it, evade it. Um, you treat it like it shouldn't be there. You almost treat your pain cruelly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's it lingers like it's this old saying isn't it what resists persists but if you engage with that pain you can start to understand what it is for you and it talked about the fact that sometimes we don't engage with that pain because because we're feeling guilty or ashamed and I hadn't put words on it before my brain after the miscarriages was just like there are all these emotions and I described them as being like different threads in my head and I didn't know what any of them were. And um, and this book and my supervisor actually kind of helped me in this process where I gave myself space to feel what I was feeling and I realised that a lot of it was self-blame and shame and guilt and... A lot of that was to do with how society treats women who miscarry. You know, we're not supposed to talk about it. It's an awkward subject. Mm-hmm. You get shut down as soon as you mention it. It's treated like, you know, you're supposed to be back at work the next day. Um, like it shouldn't be anything to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you get all these complex feelings because you're definitely feeling the loss, right, mm-hmm. of this baby. Even though mine were, they were first, tri- and even now I sort of, play it down even though mine were first trimester they was they were babies like you know for me as a pregnant mom and that's that's a word as well mom I couldn't use that word about myself um me as a pregnant mom those are those are lives that I am protecting 
right? I'm going through pain for that life. I'm eating in a specific way for that life. Every single moment of my every single day, I'm protecting this growing baby inside of me. And then to lose that is so complicated because you've never known that that child, mm. but you've given everything you have to it mm. and it's yours. Um, but also it doesn't get acknowledged. So when you miscarry in hospital, they... They, I mean, hospitals are very weird places to go through a miscarriage anyway. They call it pregnancy material. They won't refer to it as the fetus. Um, so they sort of, and they ask you, do you want to incinerate it or do you want it? And the norm is to incinerate it. And it's all very clinical. But then if you want to take the what they call pregnancy material, if you want to take the fetus to bury it, which is considered also a weird thing to do, um, you sign a form, mother of the child mm. so you have to call yourself mother so you sort of go through its process of like you know have first of all have your miscarriage at home I got told off for going to an A and E the first miscarriage um it happens wait you got told off you shouldn't have gone there at all yeah. you should have just yeah okay yeah I mean it's just it's it's yeah it just we're so strange about miscarriage in this society I think we're really messed mm -hmm. up um so I was told that I should have gone home. I had some really kind nurses who actually got me into a bed that first time. But then when the gynecologist came, she said, you shouldn't have come here. Loads of women miscarry, go home. So it's like a norm. You know, this is the norm. What's happening to you is just normal. Mm -hmm. And it's not, right? You're, in, you're inside of being destroyed, but somebody's telling you this is normal. And that creates a psychological dissonance. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, once you have miscarried and you're feeling everything you're feeling, then to have to sign yourself off as the mother to get the fetus to be able to go and bury it. It's like, well, you've just told me this happens to everyone and it's just normal. And now I'm the mother and like, wh what? <laughs> you know, um, so you're getting lots of mixed messages about who you are and what's happening to you. And most women don't know before they have a miscarriage that one in three women miscarries. So you don't you, you don't actually know that it's really common. Mm. um it's because again it's something we just don't talk about but it being common doesn't make it easier as well and so there's so many so much complexity about that form of loss um and it creates all sorts of then complex emotions when you're trying to process what has happened um and it doesn't really it doesn't just start at that point you know the complexity when you're pregnant at the beginning, you have all sorts of weird taboo and old wives' tales around what you should and shouldn't do as well. So I remember being told, oh, don't, you know, don't travel whilst you're in your first trimester because it's dangerous for the baby. Well, I travel for work, so I carried on travelling. Don't hoover. Don't, don't hoover? Don't hoover. Don't, I mean, don't ride your bike. Don't, what? Don't walk too much walk a lot like things that even contradict do you know what I mean it's yeah. like all sorts of things that end up contradicting each other and if you followed that advice you'd be very confused so I just remember thinking well I'm just going to do me and do what I do because I don't know why everyone's giving me all this unsolicited and <laughs> unqualified advice right yeah. I'm just going to do me but then what happens is when you do actually have the miscarriage you know like it's normal to look for a reason for things and then 
basically what those people have given you in those first few months of pregnancy is ammunition to beat yourself with later because you'll be like oh I did hoover on the night before <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah um and when my fine my last miscarriage happened when I ha- when I was actually traveling for work so it started when I was away um and so there I was like I've traveled for work I did this to myself um and and you do you blame you take that stuff and you blame yourself um so was part of the grieving process for you you processing the stuff that you'd made yourself wrong for like so you know not looking after yourself in the correct way in inverted commas and you know like that part of that was like saying to yourself actually no you didn't do anything wrong so I think you can probably hear from what I'm saying, like there was a lot going on in my yes. head, right? And there was more than what I'm telling you. And all these things, it probably sounds like a lot. I'm very confused right now. And that's exactly how it was in my head. I hadn't started to pull it all apart yet. So I didn't realise that I was blaming myself, mm-hmm. but I was. Didn't realise that I was ashamed that I hadn't been able to carry to term, but I was. Um, I didn't realise how important it was for me to call myself a mum. Because it's like, that's not allowed. If you haven't carried a term, you're not a mum, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, but everything in you tells you you are a mum because, like, you've been doing everything you can every day to keep this baby healthy, growing and alive, mm-hmm. right? Um, so all of those things, I think, were kind of what I would describe as threads in my brain. And then there was there was more stuff even on top of that, I think, the this this sort of the other bit of blame was why can't you just get back to you know life why can't you just get back to work why can't why are you so sad right so I was blaming myself being sad as well because everyone's telling me this is a normal thing you should just get over it and I even remember after the first one um I was organizing an event for work and um, so it was a big cultural event at the museum and um and I remember talking to colleagues, I think it was day after or two days after, and saying, look, this has just happened. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to put that event on in two weeks. Like, it's a, you know you know what it's like when mm. you're organising an event. Like, there's a lot to get ready. Um, and they kind of, you know, they did give me their sympathy and they said they were so sorry and then just went back to business. And like, so we're going to need X, Y, Z. And I was just like, what? Like, am I not supposed to take time out here I have lost something so it's sort of it's also that when you lose through a miscarriage you're not expected to grieve either mm. you're expected to get back to life as normal and I think women are talking starting to talk about this more now like Stella Creasy the Labour MP mm. um she started talking openly about her miscarriages because it's just it's this era of society where you wonder if we've gone back a century in terms of women's rights because mm everything's so taboo like you know in victorian times maybe we wouldn't talk about what happens to women but in this day and age you know well this is so that you've got that extra thing not only is does grief seem to be a taboo people just don't want to talk to you about that or anything so that you've you've got you know kind of established coping mechanisms but you then have the miscarriage on top of that so you're not only grieving but then it's also another taboo that you're not supposed to talk about yeah and so you've got this double i I, I'm going back a bit. We will. Uh, I'm going to flip about a bit because this is where the conversation basically goes. But you, when you started talking about this, you 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 started. You said that your you lost your father at a young age and your grandparents. Mm. Did you? F- and then and then you talked about like um, 
the resisting of grief um, yeah. with the miscarriages. Did you f- have the same kind of resistance of grief when it came to your grandparents and your dad? Um, so my dad, I was just 19 when he died. And um, it was not, he was, he was always terminally ill for as long as I remember. So I think with my dad, it was different because mm. it was expected um and in a way with him he was in so much pain for so long it was actually a relief that mm-hmm. like he's not in that pain anymore so it was a very different type of grieving i i know that i missed him terribly i still miss him terribly mm. like that doesn't go away no. right um but yeah i think i've reconciled myself to it in so far as you spend your like I've had an amazing dad and not everyone has an amazing dad or even a dad right Mm -hmm. and I think at that time that's how I resolved the grief was like I just remember sitting there at the graveside and just being like I am going to miss you massively but I am so grateful for everything you gave to me in every moment of your life Mm -hmm. like he was just an amazing dad um so I think it was a very different type of grief. Um, with my grandparents, I was really young when they passed away, so I barely remember it. Mm. Um, being a Indian family, we have um, family members who stand in for the ones who've passed away. So we have this head of the family idea. So he's the head of the family. <laughs> the head of the family um, was my great uncle Jigdish. So he was kind of like the patriarch of the family, and he only died recently. Um, so that grief was hard because he was almost like the final link back to India because my dad was born here. Mm-hmm. So he was from the generation that came over from India and like he came in the 60s. Um, so that was hard because I felt like it wasn't just losing him. It was like losing, losing that link. Mm. Um, so I feel like I've dealt with grief differently for everyone I've lost. But the hardest, the one that has, I'd say, messed me up the most was the miscarriages because I think because there's no, you're not, you know, it's weird to have a funeral if you miscarry, for example. Mm. You're not expected to. So you don't really get to say goodbye. You sort of have to dig a hole in your garden if you want to keep the fetus. And Mm -hmm. it's all very weird. Um, There's no real. And did you? We did. Yeah. 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 so the saying, you know, you have to always create your own tradition, your own way mm-hmm. of saying goodbye. Um, whereas with the all the adults who died, you know, we have set ways of saying goodbye to people. And um, you know, with my with my great uncle, like we have mixed the Indian and the English traditions, and we had a bit of a laugh about that. And you know, there were ways that you could feel solidarity with other people. Whereas I felt with the miscarriages. My husband and I, Edward, were basically on our own. It was like, okay, this is our grief between us and we've got to process it because there's no other way of processing this. Mm-hmm. So I think not having not having the solidarity with people around you um, and not having a process for grieving mm. and being expected just not to grieve, not to process it, I think that makes it so much harder when it comes to miscarriage. It's funny. It's just you know, listen to you talk about it, it's obviously so very odd to even imagine that someone just has to just pick themselves up and get on with mm. their lives Yeah. when you've lost someone. Yeah. And it, and like the idea that you, because you haven't met them, it, it's, you, you're not allowed to grieve. Yeah. It's not a, 
it's not a thing, which is very, very bizarre. If it, if it, the funerals, uh, I mean, largely, I think they're seen as a as a, a collective way of grieving and getting over something. Mm. Um, what well, not getting over, but a, a part of the journey of grief. Yeah. So, like the collective way of getting together with other loved ones that love the person that had died. And so you have that um, mechanism to help. Did you did you feel that you having a ceremony, even if it was just you and your husband, was helpful for the process? I think, you know, one thing that really helped, that made it feel a bit more like a process was, so when we went to the hospital to pick up the fetus, um, <laughs> there were two people there, one who made it, horrible and one who made it so much better so the first person was just the clinician who was handing me back the what she calls pregnancy material and I had to sign the form saying I'm the mom and I just fell about crying because like it was just so weird on the one hand she's passing me a box like she just put the um form I had to sign on top of the box with the fetus in it and shoved it in my direction I was supposed to sign it leaning on the box and I was just like this is just so insensitive and at the same time I'm signing as the mum right Uh it's just like such a disconnect there and I just completely fell into tears this clinician didn't know what to do she was like almost like she didn't understand it and then my husband was like can you get the chaplain in here because I think like you know we need a bit of support um so the hospital chaplain came in and we we know her already she's this amazing person but she saw what was happening and she was just like i think she got straight away that we need to acknowledge this life mm-hmm. and she did a gesture that was so seems so small but it's so significant she went out and got um the box that they put the older babies in um who have also miscarried so later um, you know, second, third trimester. Um, and they, there's a nice little box with butterflies on it. And it's just kind of acknowledge, it acknowledges this as a human life. So she got one of those um, and she sort of presented to us and said, look, actually, I think it'd be more appropriate to put the fetus in here. It's a real life. And she acknowledged the real life of the fetus. Um, she saw that I'd broken down crying when I saw like I had to sign under mum which I've you know there's denial until that point that I'm a mum and mm-hmm. then I have to sign as mum and she acknowledged me as mum mm. um, and I think that made it really important and then we spoke about what she helped us to talk through what we might do with the fetus um, so we thought about you know where we would bury it and which place would be special and so that did bring a bit of process processing what's happened and processing the loss um and it made a really big difference you know she made me feel so much better Mm. um so that helped it's hard otherwise just me and edward i think with the first one it was just us two um and we didn't really know what we were doing um yeah so that was a bit even though we did bury the first fetus like we just because we didn't really know what we were doing it felt it did feel yes it felt better to have acknowledged the life and buried it um but it also felt strange because it's almost like you know we're doing this in our back garden like Mm. underground funeral kind of (laughs) vibe you know um there's no social acknowledgement and I think with the with the last one there was that acknowledgement from the chaplain and she was really good at staying in touch afterwards and checking in as well so that made made a big difference as a social acknowledgement Mm -hmm. and I think that's what probably also what 
impacted my grief negatively so much as well was that the the lack of social support and the expectation from other people that I'm not a mum I should get on with it all of those things I realized Mm -hmm. the blaming and the shaming was me internalizing other people and that was a really big realization for me can you talk a little bit more what what you mean by internalizing other people yeah so I think you know all these things I've spoken about in terms of um, you know people telling me what I shouldn't do when I'm pregnant, right? Um, people expecting me just to get back and get on. Um, the hospital just referring to this as something that happens to lots of women and get over it. Mm-hmm. All of those things I was saying to myself. I was saying get over it. You should be getting up and getting on. Why are you sitting here depressed? Right? You probably did it to yourself you didn't take enough care all this and and it took a really long time for me to realize all these things I was saying to myself sort of punishing myself mm. for feeling sad <laughs> um that was all other people's baggage mm. it's not mine and as soon as I made that realization and this was part of this kind of engaging with the pain with my supervisor you know this advice to engage with the pain mm. um as soon as I realized that it all went right all those voices in my head went I stopped blaming myself I stopped feeling ashamed I engaged with the grief finally Mm. and then I worked out what it was I wanted and I remember I was in I'd actually gone over to see my supervisor see he's in he's in America and um he was running a retreat and he was like look just come over and um come to the retreat and um it will be really good for you to have that space right so um so I had this week where I could just think and feel importantly it was a mindfulness retreat Mm. right so um and he didn't make me run any sessions or anything like that he was like it's just going to be for you this time you're not going to run any of the mindfulness or just you're just going to be there and um and I really needed that and it was just even that acknowledgement where like you're coming here I'm not expecting you to work like I'm expecting you to feel sit with your pain and work it out right Mm -hmm. and that was a really hard process but it's towards the end of the week um I remember just kind of we had this half day of silence and everyone else went walking in the woods went down to the beach and I went into a really womb-like place I went up to my room in this cabin I went under my covers and I just sat there and I cried and I felt all the pain I hadn't allowed myself to think feel and I really cried like I wailed (laughs) there's only one other person in that place thank goodness I know him well (laughs) Um, because I just let it all out and at that time I was just feeling just feeling just feeling and not really thinking about you know what's going on in my head I stopped blaming myself for not understanding myself because that's another thing I did and then this realization came to me which is like all these voices in your head are not your voices they're other people's voices Mm -hmm. And the big insight that came to me was like, you have to acknowledge that you you are a mum. Other people can say what they like, but you know that you did everything to look after that growing fetus in your womb. Mm. And you were a mum, right? Um, and that was, I needed to say that to myself. I needed to acknowledge myself and take everybody else's voices out, out of there. Mm. Um, it sounds like, it's, it, it really sounds like you you were able to kind of um 
use your, your own intellect and what you've learned about psychology to be able to go, oh, okay, I can pull this apart. I know, I kind of know what's happening to me, obviously with help from your supervisor as yeah. well, but you were able to do that. The, one of the recurring themes that I think is coming up as I make these podcasts is that the it's it's engaging with the grief and being direct with it rather yeah. than trying to resist it and hide it and you know it's building up this picture that like for me the the shame around talking about grief or even experiencing grief mm. is the problem at hand because actually you naturally just need to go through it right you just need to Absolutely. accept it yeah do you, do you feel like can you talk a little bit more about what your supervisor or what was in unintended story yeah unattended actually, unattended sorry i was gonna read um just a sentence that oh yeah really, please do yeah, kind of really struck i mean there's a lot in here um but there's a chapter so there's loads of chapters in this book but there's one called trusting our pain mm-hmm. and i think that was a big one for me was like that's where i got this idea that i need to engage with the pain and you know in psychology like you say psychology helped me to an extent but actually another way I blame myself was like you're a psychologist dude like you should do you know what I mean like you should know how to deal with grief and like you know psychology in psychological theories always have like stages and processes and like you know I was thinking of the you know the Kubler-Ross um seven stages of grief this, yeah five yeah. or seven stages yeah. whichever one you're looking at um and I was like I can't find myself on this and like what's going on in my head why can't I think of like a psychological theory to help me right, right. now right so I was actually blaming myself for that as well and I think you know it wasn't until my supervisor came along and was, introduced me to this book and spoke to me that um I had a helpful way to rethink it so I think even being a psychologist doesn't help you I mean it just helped me that I have a supervisor every month right yeah. which people get from a counsellor so yeah it was actually another way to blame myself but um <laughs> I get, I think in this book, I mean, actually, do you know what? I'm going to read a bit of the foreword as well before I read from the chapter that really helped me, just because I think it just says it so well. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the foreword, this is uh, his name, Stephen Levine, who wrote this. Um, so he asks, what does unattended sorrow look like? It's like a low-level grade fever. It troubles our sleep and drains away our days. It scatters intuition and creates an underlying anxiety. It sours the eye and the ear and leaves a distaste in the mouth. It's the vague uncertainty that permeates every thought before every action. It's the heart working as hard as it can. Um, And it's what most of us carry with us from day to day. Um, After the initial loss uh, has passed and the period of grieving has ended, an unattended sorrow lingers, accounting for a host of physical, emotional and spiritual maladies. And then this was important. It's not uncommon then for those with unresolved grief to lean towards self-destruction, dangerous behaviour, sometimes addictions, um, which I could definitely see in myself. Like, you know, you're, you will, if, you're, if you're pushing something down to your subconscious, or sorry, if you're just pushing something down from your conscious mind and you're not allowing yourself to process it, um, it comes out in other ways right Mm. so we know this from other areas of our lives like if we're feeling upset with a member of our family but we don't want to get into an argument Mm. we might find passive aggressive ways to leave our socks on the floor or Mm -hmm. like you know (laughs) behaviors that will harm them or harm ourselves um 
So I think that was this. This was it's, it's it's kind of a good way of talking about it. But then you know, again, that's another reason I was blaming myself because I was like, you know, as a psychologist, I know that I should lean into what I'm feeling, but I don't know what I'm feeling. I think that was the big thing. It was like I don't know what I'm feeling. There's so much going on in my head. Um, Do you think that's the analytical side of you, though, trying to go right? I need to ex- like come up with the. The, the the causes and the and the feelings and, and explain those to myself do you think everybody goes through that do that or they do they just yeah. naturally go with the yeah or repress it or <laughs> which that's all right um i think it's a good question i think everyone probably i don't know i can't speak for everyone mm. i think some people just suppress it don't they yeah um well, it's, it, from what you just read and what you then spoke about, actually, mm. I was I was actually thinking exactly the same thing when you were talking about, you know, if if it's a member of your family, you've had you've had a, un, uh, uh, an argument that you didn't have, like you wanted to pick them up or something. Or I know from experience of, you know, you build up lots of things in your past that are like, oh, I probably could have done that better, but yeah. I didn't speak to that person about the fact that I've made a mistake or or I've wronged somebody and actually you 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 think that you just like okay sometimes that comes up in my head and it makes me feel worried about it and then it goes away and it actually doesn't affect my day to day but having an experience myself of challenging as many of those things as I possibly mm. could how free I felt afterwards is indescribable hmm. this this absolute kind of like oh they were all sitting there underneath, like yeah. without me thinking about. It. They're all lining and forming my personality, and I'm a right moody bastard. <laughs> um, but now I've got to this stage where, um, yeah, you, I would much rather address those things immediately as soon as I can, mm. um, so that it isn't affecting me. And I guess, like, grief is essentially the same thing. Yeah. But there's, there's, when you've got a disagreement with someone or you have to own up to doing something wrong, that seems almost reasonable whereas if you're going actually I'm going to be with my grief and Mm. I am going to wail and I'm going to feel very (laughs) very upset there's a this is and I think this is kind of gets into that British mentality thing of like no 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 no, that would be terrible yeah yeah think of the shame of someone seeing you cry or anything like that how do you think we get to a place I mean this is a big question but how do you think we get to a place where we we can remove that shame for for people? Oh, yeah, that's a really big it's a really big question. Um Yeah, you know, I mean this is probably like the perennial question of every psychologist as well because I think, you know, 101 in therapy is engage with the emotion. Like emotions are there for a reason they're helping you to process. If that's depression, you know, that's mm. Depression serves a role, right? Um, anxiety, we might say, you know, it's a, it's it's not particularly healthy, um, but what's underneath it, you mm. know? Um, and I think when it comes to grief, you know, you'd really want to be saying, well, like engage with the grief, engage with the pain, right? Which is what this book is saying. It's like, go, you know, engage with the, the pain, feel mm. it, understand it, Um and I guess, you know, there are social, pe- there can be social pen- penalties for that. So maybe that's about finding a safe space to be able to express your grief, feel your grief the way you want to feel it. For some people, that will be a long walk in the countryside or many, many long walks in the countryside. 
Um, for some people, that may be going out and partying for a bit and just forgetting everything. Mm. Um, but kind of letting it tick over in the back. Um, and I guess it's it's it, it's different for everyone. So I don't really know the answer to that question. I think, you know, as a, a psychologist, you'd always say, find ways to engage with the emotion, understand it, see what role it's playing for you. Um, but y there are, yeah, there may be social penalties to doing that. Um, Do and maybe sometimes you need to face the social penalties for your better good, you know, put yourself before those social penalties. Is it maybe something that we develop as we get older? I, I'm just trying to think back of like, how intense when you were younger, mm. how intense seeing somebody else cry mm. is and, what, and how you don't know what to do because yeah. it's like, oh shit. So you, you want to actively remove yourself from that situation. Mm. And as I get older, like crying is a form of communication. That's why I've mm. always understood it. I mean, someone's just basically communicating with me non-verbally. Like laughing is socially acceptable. Let's all get into big crowds and do it that we can all laugh at comedians or, you know, what's ever happening in a film. But crying, fuck no. Yeah. You, you absolutely <laughs> so cannot do this together or bring shame. Whereas they, they feel similar. Mm. Like th these expressions, these non-verbal expressions. So people are communicating with you um, mm. and you basically, you, your presence basically allows you to, that to happen you, yeah you, what you shouldn't the, the worst thing that we all do which is oh shit someone's crying get the fuck out of here whereas really what you need to be doing is going yeah cool you go with it and yeah. you because it's your own uncomfortability that's yeah that's really interesting because so there's another thing my supervisor talks about is sitting in, he calls it sitting in the white hot fire so um I'm trying to remember the initial analogy now but it's like you know if somebody is if somebody is really sad, you feel awkward. So sitting in the white hot fire is just sitting. You don't need to say anything, right? You just sit with that person. Quite often if somebody is sad and crying, they don't need you to talk. They don't need you to solve anything for them, right? And we, I think part of the awkwardness is like we want to solve the problem. So the sitting in the white hot fire is like, it's uncomfortable to be there. Like white hot fire is hot, right? Mm. But just sit there, just stay calm and be with that person, right? sit with them in their white hot fire, like let them feel what they're feeling, but just your companionship, just your being there sitting next to them makes a massive difference. Mm. Right. And I guess that like, I could even relate that to my story. I don't know if you can relate it to yours, but it was the people who were there not saying much. It was that chaplain, right? Mm -hmm. She just produced a box. It changed the world for me. She just acknowledged I'm a mom that changed the world for me. She didn't say much. She just sat there mm. and she heard me. And she reflected back and she didn't do anything else. And that's all I needed. I felt held, right? Mm. And it's amazing how powerful nonverbal communication is at times of high emotional load as well. Because, you know, when you're crying and you're sad and you're distressed and you're grieving, you have a very high emotional load. What you don't need is someone else who is obviously anxious about your emotional load, mm. you know, firing off a vice like a machete gun, like... <laughs> You know, um, someone who just sits there and feels it with you, on the other hand, it's almost grounding, sort of brings your emotional load down. They're holding it for you. You know, as 
you know, humans, we're social creatures. We hold each other's emotions mm -hmm. and we do that non-verbally, right? In counselling, you call that containment, don't you? Mm -hmm. Where the counsellor kind of holds all your emotions for you. So you can almost, you've externalised your emotions now, you can process them. And the counsellor does that by not saying very much, mm -hmm. just reflecting what you said. And I think having that role where you can just sit with someone is really, really helpful. So maybe it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like giving yourself permission, right? Because mm. you needed somebody like you've got that shame around crying that yeah. we've all built up over years and years and years. Um, but then someone's allowing you to cry. Mm -hmm. So they've basically said, yeah, you, you, you're allowed. So you, you not only are you doing the crying bit, which is the helpful bit, but mm. you're also someone's telling you and that's OK. You're allowed to do this. So yeah. that's that double whammy of of like, oh, thank yeah thank you for giving me the space to be able to do this without them really doing anything and they are they're creating space right that's a really good word for it they're creating the space for your emotions mm. and that's really important yeah just going back to the the fact that your the your story of grief around miscarriages is also around like kind of that taboo mm. um this oh we can't talk about that so you've got that double kind of like oh grief no we can't talk about that oh it's it's grief of a of a having after having a miscarriage we really can't talk about that mm. do you feel like that there was that you had more hurdles with people that might be there to care for you like friends or family that mm. you might did you have more to kind of contend with to to break through barriers to feel supported I had a really mixed picture from my friends um some of them who had so, so one of the things that was really funny was there were friends of mine who had to had miscarriages and I had no idea because they just kept it quiet, right? So that was weird. Then they'd come out and say, "I'm so sorry, I had miscarriage to you." Um, some added to the blame and shame by sort of making out like they dealt with theirs okay. One of them, I know that wasn't the case because I remember <laughs> what she went through. But in her retrospective memory, she dealt with it fine. Right. I think she probably buried it so far. That's what she truly believed. <laughs> um, and then that adds to the shame because it's a bit more of a voice of like, well, you know, she dealt with it. Why can't I deal with it? Uh -huh. You know, um, then some friends were supportive and I think tuned into how I was feeling. Um, even my medical friends. You know, medical friends were quite helpful because they were able to say, yeah, this is how, like, medicine sees it. But it is a real person. Mm -hmm. And they were able to help me to sort of rationalise that. Um, and that was really good. So I'd say my close friends mainly were really good. Um, but then I also had some friends who, you know, repeated what they'd said to me when I was pregnant. Oh, well, I told you not to travel. And you're like, well, <laughs> That's helpful. Basically telling me I've murdered my baby by <laughs> travelling. <laughs> like... <laughs> like that's not that's not a good you know that's, that's, that's not really good it's advice. also obviously ludicrous to even right. suggest such a thing yeah like yeah. really ludicrous I, there's a really interesting thing about the the, the medical angle on this like yeah. the, the fact that it's so clinical i mean yeah. um that's not that pun wasn't intended but <laughs> i my partner talk, talks about this as well but with the um through medicalized touch like there's a like there's a non there's a very formal way of like moving, touching bodies rather than something that, that feels nice. And right. I'm not saying like if you're having a prostate examination, that it, like it's it, it, we should be sensual about it. But there is there is a way that you can be touched that feels horrible. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and this is medicine 
in a nutshell, like it doesn't go, okay, can, should we should we try and be a bit more sensitive about this? Unless mm. it's like, oh, it is around death. But they're not, but they don't think about that within miscarriage is, seems like such a massive thing to miss. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 that's just a waffle. But a, a question I want to ask, and it's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a difficult one because you, you've talked a lot about receiving advi- unwarranted advice. Yeah. Um, which actually hasn't been helpful. Right. But, but I kind of want to ask you yeah. what advice you would give to anyone experiencing grief through miscarriage. Yeah, well, I actually been in, I have been in this position since. Um, and I think just what I try to do, I don't know whether it's advice, but I just try to lean into the emotions that person's feeling and help them accept that. Um and I try to have a talk about some of the taboos as well because, you know, I know I've, you know, I've been on miscarriage forums since I've talked to other women who've miscarried online mostly where we're talking specifically about that topic. And I know what happened to me and the way I felt a lot of women go through that. So I tend to try and help friends going through the same kind of pick apart those taboos as well. Um, and just acknowledge, acknowledge them, like acknowledge that a lot of people have a lot of unhealthy opinions about miscarriage and mm. unhealthy attitudes towards women who miscarry. And actually it's your baby. I think that's probably the single most important thing is like, you know, acknowledge just because other people don't acknowledge it's your baby. You can acknowledge it's your baby. Mm. You know, you don't need them to acknowledge it's your baby and I'll acknowledge it was your baby, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that's what I I try to do, obviously it's different for different people because everyone, you know, although there are universal experiences, people experience those in different ways. Um, but I guess I just try to be there now to acknowledge how the person is feeling and maybe help them not to blame themselves and help them to work out what of other people's taboos they've taken on. Mm. This is like, it's been super helpful for me to challenge my own um approach to people that I know that have miscarried um and like retrospectively thinking about my reaction to it Mm. and how fearful I think is what it's kind of like oh shit that's terrible I, I I really should not talk to you for at least a month because this is the worst thing that could possibly happen and I can't and I think there's there's a thing for me that's like oh well, I can't well I can't fix that so mm-hmm. so I I can't talk to you about it right. because that would be awful yeah yeah um, whereas there isn't you know it, I don't think there is that necessarily the, there's no necessity for me to fix something there, yeah. th- nobody needs that it's just having somebody to talk to about it and just be there and be there and to say like that's I can't imagine what that feels like. That must be awful, you know, to acknowledge mm. that. I think just to acknowledge the way the person is feeling. Like if you just said that line that you just said here, you know, I can't fix it, but I feel like that's the most awful thing. Mm. Even that like, acknowledges the pain. Yeah. And I think that is a lot of it is just about holding the space, right? Being there mm. and acknowledging. And you don't actually have to say much. I think that's the thing. Like I think we can get ourselves wrapped up in what should I do, right? You don't need to do anything. You just need to be be there. Um, Am I concentrating on this idea that, that it's a very British thing mm. to, to be reserved and hold grief at arm's length? 
or actually is it a phenomenon that all humans go through and don't want to talk about grief is there a healthy society that goes yeah yeah grief's a good thing good to thing. well i think you know religious societies probably do grief quite well because um and this is one of the things that i think you look at in any kind of what's called post-traumatic growth you know how you develop out of your experienced traumas um spiritual resourcing is one way in which you, which is kind of like it quite often comes from religion and um, one way in which you kind of almost see a a bigger picture so you sort of see yourself within a context that has a meaning so you can make meaning a lot easier which makes it easier to process grief mm-hmm. or whatever trauma you're experiencing so for example like you know, I'm a member, although my family are Hindu and Christian, I'm a Muslim just to make life fun. Um, <laughs> and I think within the Muslim community, especially locally in Peterborough, like there's a very strong Pakistani community here. They have real rituals around grief. So, you know, a friend of mine um, lost her baby actually at, at birth, which is incredibly sad. Um and everyone held space for her. And a nor- so a normal thing to do is that you go to the house of the person who has lost someone. It doesn't have to be a baby. It could be their father, sister, whatever. And you sit with them. And literally everyone would just go there and sit. And mm-hmm. there might be food going around, but that person is attended to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that can be very healthy. It becomes unhealthy mm. when those people are expected to cook. You know, the family who've lost are expected to cook for everyone. So there's a balance. But I think, you know, that household had the right balance. And um, we literally just, there were probably about 40 people in the room when I went. We just sat there, sat with her. I went over to her and said, I'm, I'm sorry. And um, just sort of held her hand for a minute. And then I moved away and somebody else came in and she sort of, you know, she was just there with all these people sitting with her. No one was saying anything. There wasn't any particular process. Just that idea of like we go to the grieving person's house and we sit with them. And that kind of process tends to go on for about three days after the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and also within Muslim societies. Um, and I think this is there's similarities with Christian kind of. Uh, processing of death as well um you have so you have the funeral and actually for muslims funeral happens within usually a day or two days Mm -hmm. of the death um and within the funeral anyone can go to funeral you're encouraged to go to anybody's funeral so the mosque can get quite full for funerals like a notification will go out and everyone goes to the mosque um and that's a way of sending that person on to, you know, their next life. So there's also this idea that there is the next life. So you have that, you know, you're never really dead, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and that's a good thing to do. And then after that, you have the three days of grieving where you go and visit the family. And so there is this whole process. And I think for Christians as well, you know, have the funeral where you talk about the person, you remember things about them. And you, that's nice way of processing as well, because mm-hmm. you take away elements of who they were to you and how important they were. Mm. And, you know, I find that a good way of almost keeping the person with me. Like, these are all the things they gave me, right? Mm. So my dad's funeral was like, oh, he's amazing. Like Everyone's here acknowledging how amazing he was. And I got all of that all my life. Um, so I think I would probably rather make a difference maybe with religious rites of saying goodbye um versus maybe um non-religious that rather than cultural if that makes sense Mm. um 
Yeah, I mean, what you're describing there sounds very similar to an Irish wake, um, mm. which made me think because there's there's the whole the whole community comes round. Mm. Um, you probably have the body in the in the house, um, but you just sit with people. You let them cry. You have the whole community come to the to the funeral. It's not just for the close friends and family. Like it's very sounds very similar in that sense. Um, and what I'm what I that led me on to thinking is is like you know Britain has become a very secular country mm. in quite a short space of time um and I'm wondering whether there's a de- direct correlation between whether we had more healthy grief traditions when mm. religion was involved and because we've become more secular that, that those traditions have fallen to the wayside because mm there's less practicing religious people so therefore we don't need to do those things yeah and so they don't hold any meaning right yeah but they actually are super super helpful and they hold lots of meaning right right so maybe it is that 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 hand in hand thing maybe i've finally figured it out cracked it i've cracked the code (laughs) but you know it's it's interesting because we are seeing more sort of humanist secular traditions being developed right like we're in a phase and I'm really interested to see how those develop so you know um the idea of burying somebody under a tree for example so a tree grows from them Mm. and then there is you know if you don't believe in heaven there is still an aspect of life after death like a life has come from this death and I can come back to this tree and it has that symbolism Mm -hmm. um and so it's interesting seeing these small acts of symbolism coming out of a more kind of secular humanist approach and I wonder whether it's a, a just a matter of time um before we develop new rituals and and ways of processing because we need that as humans right we need to give context and meaning to what's happened we need to understand the meaning of our loss yeah yeah and I'm just thinking back to the funerals that I've been to and and I would say 95% of them almost seem like they're a formality Mm. and have nothing to do with grief because of there isn't any other tradition built around it. It's like, come and this is your time to do your thing. That's your allotted time. Now leave. And then that's that done. Which is very odd if you think about it, that we keep this idea that that's, that's how you deal with grief. Like, you might get a few people say, oh, I'm there if you need me yeah. beforehand. Then you will come together and go and do a cry and, and whatever. And then that's over and you're done. Like, really, that's, that's, that's actually very, very bizarre. Um, almost psychopathic in a way. Because mm. you're like, what, what have you created for yourselves here? Like, what is this? No wonder it feels so kind of empty. It's almost yeah. like a, you know, a Clinton card's um token token gesture yeah. just like with deepest sympathy there you go um and that's that in the hole goodbye <laughs> yeah i've done that then um which is actually yeah it's frightening to think that that's that's the tradition that we're we've built over the last i don't know how many years since mm. you know all these other traditions have fallen to the wayside um but yeah as you quite rightly say like building other traditions is like the way forward right and even like you said um i went to a tree planting it wasn't it it was a tree planting in honor of that person right so it wasn't on their uh, on their grave or anything right. but there's still it's still very emotional that mm. this tree is going to represent that person like way more emotional than say a bench 
for <laughs> benches don't get you very emotional <laughs> and sitting on them seems inappropriate as well <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad i'm not the only person who weird, right? um but the tree yeah it, there's like you know when that's in leaf and um the blossom appears on it and or you know what depending on the tree just um there's it that still feels connected to that person even yeah. if it's not buried on the same uh, planted on the same site as the burial um so yeah healthy traditions around that uh, are sorely needed okay so that uh podcast kind of ends rather abruptly but that's because we kind of went off on a tangent that didn't really make sense to keep into the podcast but um that's okay what i really want to reflect on here is the the significance of the conversation that's being had um about miscarriage and actually some of the dawning realizations i've had through having that conversation the as i mentioned in it the fear of talking to other people that have experienced it is actually quite tangible and I guess I'm quite ashamed about that now I think about it, now I've had this conversation. What's really obvious is if you're put in that situation that it's hard, really hard, and yet you're expected just to get up and get on, go out there and carry on like nothing's happened. Obviously that attitude needs to change and we really need to look at how we think about loss in the womb. I think Anita would recommend that uh, reading Unattended Sorrow is good for anyone that's been affected by anything in this podcast, as well as general grief. Um, I'm certainly going to give it a read as soon as I can. Um, If you feel like someone might need to have a listen to this podcast because they might need some help or some understanding, then feel free to forward it on. And as always, please do leave a review or... Any kind of feedback is greatly appreciated at this early stage. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.